In introducing Dr. Gardner, uh, he's a veterinarian, dentist, spiritual advisor, a frontier doctor, and all, well, he was all of these. Um, traveling the paths newly hewn into the early Colorado mountain wilds, Dr. Charles Fox Gardner found himself facing many a strange medical situation and many an odd duty. Dr. Gardner, please join me. Thank you. Uh, I am very glad to be with you this afternoon and very glad that I was able to make it back in time. I've just come back across the Mesa um, from Glen Erie. Um, uh, General Palmer sends his regards. He, with his incredible strength, but also notable willpower, he is, as you may know, planning to leave on a trip to Europe with his daughter Marjorie. And I was, uh, I was over, as I, as I oftentimes do, um, consulting with uh, his, his uh, resident physician, Dr. Henry Watt, about plans for his journey across the country, across the ocean by steamship, and then his daughter's planned marriage to Lieutenant Wellesley in England. What a remarkable man. Uh, as many of you, I think, know, he, he suffered that the fall in October of 2006, and here it is a year and a half later, and uh, paralyzed as he is, he's making ready to make the trip. So may we all be as, um, as powerful as, as General Palmer, even when paralyzed. Well, um, I am very glad that, uh, th that I've been invited to, to share just a, a few of the, the events that have happened in my life, especially in my younger days, as we consider um, the medical practice here in the Pikes Peak region. Um, just, I've been thinking, as I was writing back over, um, I've been thinking about um, what inspired me uh, as, as a, to become a doctor. And so I just might share a few of those, of those episodes with you from my life. The first one that I distinctly remember, now I must tell you that I was born not here in Colorado Springs or even in Colorado but in New York City and raised in a family. Um, I always like to say well-to-do without being wealthy. Um, raised in a family that, uh, that enabled me to be spoiled to, because I was a, uh, sometimes uh, rather infirm, um, an unhealthy child, and um, for sometimes extended periods of time, uh, pampered and coddled, uh, enabled me not to have to go to school. And I found that to be both a blessing and a curse as my young life went on. But my parents decided, my father decided that he was um, wealthy enough to take a, a journey uh, uh, to Europe and spend more than a year. And so my mother and I, I being an only child, we took steamship across to Europe, and so we traveled to all the great cities, and I, I must admit that it was tremendously educational. But we found ourselves in Germany as the clouds of war began to build between France and Germany. And the Franco-Prussian War began in, a, began in 1870. And there I was, just almost 13 years old, when the war broke out. 
Well, it was exciting for me. It was a, a marvelous experience, living history as it happened. But it was also, as the German army, the Prussians came closer and closer to Paris and finally, uh, essentially, uh, uh, surrounded Paris. We could hear the guns in the distance blazing away, the, the, the artillery. And then the streams of wounded soldiers trucked in on wagons and carts into the city. Well, right behind our hotel, where we were essentially prisoners of war, although I did not care, they opened up a temporary hospital, a field station, to, to aid the, 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 uh, the soldiers as they came in from the front. Well, I was, uh, for, for whatever reason, I was totally fascinated by this. And like many others, fascinated with the, the impacts of the war, I found myself every day standing around watching the comings and goings from that field station. Until one day, well, I suppose it is one of the orderlies had been drinking. For as they were unloading a wagon with wounded soldiers, why that orderly who seemed very unsteady on his feet, he let one end of the stretcher slip. And, and although I'd, all of us, the civilians, had been told to stay back, stay back for days and days, I jumped in, into his place and I, I lifted up the end of the stretcher and started to carry it right in toward the field station, carrying the young man for treatment. Well, I could barely hold up my end. But then I felt powerful hands on the back of, of, of my shoulders. And I looked back thinking that I was going to be ejected from the scene. But there was a, an officer dressed there. And he reached out and he, he took the stretcher from me. He was the father of this young soldier who had been wounded. And he told uh, those in charge of the field station that from then on, whenever this boy wanted to come in and wander around, he was to have full run of the place. And so it was that as the days went by, I, I found myself doing errands, um, carrying buckets of water, running bandages up and down the stairs. And although it did not strike me as m morbid or strange, a time or two I got to even hold a leg or an arm as it was amputated. And it seemed so wonderful. <laughs> but of course, I was 13 years old. <laughs> Such things perhaps do seem when we are 13. And yet, I was fascinated. Yes, we managed to escape um, over to England and then back to the United States. A few years later, economic times grew hard. And I suppose my parents thought it would be good for me to learn about the business world at any rate. I, I took a job with a family friend as his office boy. His company was importing silks, primarily, of course, from the Orient. And he was a wonderful man, a great friend of our family. And I did many different things, running out and collecting money and delivering bills and back and forth and, and sitting in the office when he was out. And when he was out, well, I had developed a fascination in those years with anatomy. And when he was gone for long periods of time as he was, I had taken, when the office was quiet, to dissecting 
cats. They were dead, of course, by the time I got to dissect them. Dissecting cats. And so it was that, that one Friday I was doing that. He was gone out of town, out of the city. And I was dissecting the cat. And, of course, I was stringing and labeling all of the body parts as the cat was more and more exposed. But something happened at the end of the day, and I can't even remember what it was. Something happened near the end of the day, and I was called out of the office. Perhaps it was something I'd forgotten to do in my, in, in my fascination with the, the, the anatomy of, of a feline. At any rate, I left the cat. I just tucked it into my desk drawer and left the cat there over the weekend. <laughs> now, the first one into the office on Monday was my employer. And can you imagine the smell? Can you imagine? Uh, at any rate, yes. Of course he discovered my dissection. But he was not, the, the amazing thing was that he was not angry. And when I came into work that day, he asked me what I had been doing. And I was ashamed, of course. But he told me not to be ashamed. And within, within a matter of days, he had talked to my parents about what he thought that I should be doing. And that was going to medical school, taking up medical studies. Here, a boy who had hardly, I had had tutors, yes, from time to time, and traveled far, and seen the world with a child's eyes as if they were the eyes of an adult. But still, but still, he talked to a friend of his who was a professor at the College of Physicians and Surgeons, the Bellevue Medical College. And so I found myself within a matter of weeks sitting on the hard benches of the college and studying medicine. And I took it up with great fervor. For I think it was, in fact, the thing that I had been meant to do in life. And I had discovered that. Well, so much for the detailed stories now. I will just tell you that after several years, of uh, two years of studying, I passed my chemistry examination, and I became uh, a, a chemist. I received my certificate as a chemist. And then one more year of study, and I received my medical certificate. And to make a long story short, for I must get myself here to Colorado very soon, for it has been many years now that I have been here, but I, um, I interned for a year at the charity hospital, which is on an island in the East River. And the only way back and forth is by a rowboat. Very interesting, very interesting. The patients on all of the staff go back and forth, and so I did for a year. But I chafed under the, uh, the stricture. I thought that I, could wa I wanted to do more than the commonplace medicine that we saw with the patients, the same cases over and over, the disease af after the disease, the same diseases of an intensely crowded, in some places very foul, city. And so I asked and was allowed to become the surgeon at the jail, which is on that very same island. And there I had more freedom. And there ah, I learned much more about a, a wider variety of different maladies and many different skills, for I had the independence to be a doctor on my own without without the, the, the medical staff staring over my shoulder. Well, after that, a year of that, and another year in 
what we called in those days the outdoor medicine practice. That is the ambulance service. And in that service, I learned and I saw many horrid and many wonderful things. And I learned many wonderful things as well. How to do a little dentistry. I learned that. Um, along with my medical, my medical skills. Now, my father insisted that I hang out my shingle when I had finished my internships. And I insisted that being a, occasionally a weak and sickly boy, but a boy who had taken up at about the age of 16, a desire to become, if not big, for I have never been more than my current height of five feet seven and my weight of 110 pounds. But that I, I determined that I would make myself wiry and durable. And I started to work out almost every day until even working out as much as I could, boxing, canoeing, hiking in the summers, carrying my pack basket through the Adirondacks and the Catskills. I knew that I was ready to face the West. I had read all the books about the explorers when I was a boy. And so it was that I told my father that I was heading West. Well, he would not hear of it, but I came West. And so it was at the very end of the year of 1882 that I came to Colorado. And right as the new year began, I found myself having taken the train and then the stage as the snows began to fall harder and harder that winter in a little town in the mountains called Crested Butte. Now, you may have visited Crested Butte, and you know that it is, for me, it was one of the most beautiful places in the world. And so I hoped to hang out my shingle there until I found that I was not the first or the second, the third. Perhaps that alcoholic doctor should not be counted. But let us say that I was the third doctor in Crested Butte. Now, it was a mining town in large part, but it was also a cow town in some ways, surrounded by cattle ranches. And so there was plenty to do with all of the accidents that mining implies. And so it was that being the third doctor in town and perhaps the most, the, the one with the most modern set of skills, let us say, but the one with the least name recognition, I found myself with very little money in my pocket, wealthy or well-to-do, notwithstanding. Um, I, I was fortunate that winter. I was fortunate at what I had learned in the ambulance service. For there was one of the mining engineers from one of the mines who had terrible cavities in his teeth and was ex ex experiencing excruciating pain. And then I remembered that my skills, the skills that I had learned, I could turn toward his, his problem and turn toward a profit. And in, in a couple of sessions, I managed to solve his problem and, 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 and fill his, his cavities and take the money. And I, I lived as, as inexpensively as I could, saving what I could until those very deep snows of that winter, those snows on which I had learned to snowshoe uh, on the skis that the Scandinavian miners uh, taught me with. I had saved my money and I was able to build a little house. I did not have enough money to buy perhaps the most expensive lot in town. And I built myself, along with the help of a, of, of a town carpenter, 
a small house, a one-room house, oh, much, much smaller than this room. And I moved in, pride of ownership being what it was, to my one room, which was my living room, bedroom, kitchen, um, uh, office, waiting room. And the only little room it was not was the little room out back, if you know what I mean. And I crawled into the bunk, which I had built against the wall. And I realized that first night sleeping in my new home that I had made a bit of a mistake. For you see, well, a mistake in buying the lot, yes, and also a mistake in locating the bunk. For you see, next to my little home was one of the saloons in town. And it had the nickname of the slaughter pen. And you can imagine what I mean by that. At any rate, the slaughter pen was a noisy place to all hours of the night. And, well, after a couple of weeks, I was, with the help of cotton balls in my ears, I was starting to learn to sleep through the night when one night I went out to tend a sick patient at the hotel, my former residence, and stayed up late after 10 or so in the evening talking to friends in the lobby around the, around the pot-bellied stove when we heard <coughs> gunfire coming from down the street. We rushed out, noted that it was coming from the slaughter pen, not an unusual happening. When the gunfire was done, rushed down the street to the slaughter pen. I was beaten by, by one of the other doctors to the slaughter pen, beaten to the work that had to be done. But at any rate, we saw that several of the boys as all of the men in town called each other, for there were very few of the girls, of the women, in Crested Butte in those days. Several of the boys had been shot up kind of bad, as the men quite often said. And as the evening went on, a collection was taken up for the docks, who was doing the work. Well, before the collection was taken up and the men were hauled off to the boarding house, those who'd been shot through the arm, as I remember, and the leg, another one, the most serious. I'd wandered next door. In the door I went. It was late. I was tired. I didn't put up a light. I sat down on my little bunk to unlace my boots. And I felt something on my bedclothes that hadn't been there when I left. And then I put up a light, a candle. I brought it back to the bed, and I saw that there were uh, splinters of wood across the bed. And then I looked, held the candle closer to the wall and saw that there were holes in the wall, fresh holes in the wall, bullet holes, of course. And seeing the location of one of them, I laid myself down on my bed and put my head on my pillow, turned my face to the wall and saw that one of the holes was right next to the place where my head, had it been on the pillow, would have been. The next morning, I went back to the lumber yard used some more of that money that I had been saving, bought some more lumber and built a second wall between the, the three feet or so between my house and the slaughter pen. From one end of the house, from, the, from the, the ground all the way up to the eaves, which I was about to extend. But before I did, I packed a thick, foot-thick wall of sand from front to back and top to bottom. And from then on, I slept much better. Not only because it was more quiet, but I think you know the other reason. Now... I did not get to practice in, in that instance, but there were other times. The time, for instance, when perhaps only a couple of weeks after that first episode, there was a knock at my door late at night, and it was a young man named John Wilson who appeared to be my patient. For flushed he was and sweating, the sweat pouring off him on a very cool 
to cold spring night. It was his brother, Mike. He'd taken an explosion at their mine on the side of Black Mountain. Now, I, did not, I had not skied to Black Mountain. I did not know which peak it was, which surrounded which valley. But the next morning as dawn came, as we rented horses from the livery stable, John led me up through the valley, across the river, and then up and up a trail and into the snow, into the forest. The trail climbed high and low, and in one place he rode ahead, a place that he said is likely to avalanche, especially in the spring. Well, it did that day as I was halfway across that slope, and it carried me down, threw me off my horseback, and slapped me hard onto the ground. Now the snow, the snow, it had infiltrated my clothes. And I realized that as it started to melt within, underneath my clothes, up against my skin. And as I tried to sit up and shake the snow out to take my coat off, I felt the pain in my side. I knew probably that I had cracked a rib. I hoped that it was not worse. John, he saw me lying there beside the, 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 the bare ground, nearly bare ground where the avalanche had run. But my horse and my doctor bag were gone. John ran down. He found the horse in the great mounds of snow that were setting up quite hard. He dug down quickly as he found the horse's leg and the belly band of the saddle and my doctor bag still attached there. And so it was that with his help on his horse, we rode to Timberline, and I realized what he meant when he said that the mine which they had been developing was on the side of Black Mountain. For you see, Black Mountain is a peak that soars to a little above 13,000 feet. And when we broke Timberline and the horse was unable to pass through the, through the softening snow, we had to turn it around and rock it and send it back, and I had to go alone. It was difficult, but I said nothing to John. I knew he had enough worries of his own. We came at last at the top of the ridge and I looked down at the house in which they lived at the mouth of their mine. It was built onto a shelf of rock which had been blown out at the mouth of the mine by dynamite. But it was big enough that it hung out over the edge of a cliff. And there were, there were great hawsers wrapped around the house as if to keep it like a toy in the wind from blowing, tumbling, down the mountainside. I made my way mostly on hands and knees down the icy trail to the house. And when I slipped and fell upon my side again, I think I passed out. At any rate, to make this long story short, when I was finally warmed with my feet in the water, awakened, given some food, I went to work on, on Mike Wilson. He had been sandblasted, uh, um, rock blasted by the explosion. His face was, was almost skinned, his eyes, his nose, his lips swollen, all of his organs almost, almost completely shut. But when I opened his eyelids, pried them open, and checked for reaction to light, I saw there was none. And I told John that we must get him down, knowing that the, the nearest eye doctor that I knew of, the nearest oculist was in Denver. I knew we had, had to, to get him away. So at any rate, 
Down the mountain we went the next morning after experiencing a, an avalanche of rocks coming down the mountainside and smashing into the house the night before that awakened me and kept me awake for most of the night. I still said nothing about my own small pains. And down we went. I said goodbye to John and Mike. I never saw them again. And the day after that, I, 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 I took on a high fever. It was, I think, the infected wounds of Mike that I had been dressing performing nothing but first aid at Timberline. Those infections spread until blood poisoning uh, infected me. It drove my fever up high. I was, I was completely unconscious uh, of, of, the, of the outer world for more than a week. At any rate, I'm not complaining about myself. My ribs did heal. A letter arrived from Mike, excuse me, from John, um, from Denver told me that he was going to be bringing his brother back to Ohio, their, their home, for he was blind, the doctor said. And um, he told me that he hoped my ribs were healing up well. Um, one last thing about Crested Butte. There were no veterinarians within a great range of Crested Butte in those days either. There was a fellow who was very proud of his mule team that would haul ore wagons from the, from the mines back and forth. Those mules were treated better than most of the miners in the mines, perhaps all of them. Um, but when one of his, one of his mules, it developed uh, a tumor on its shoulder, he begged and begged and begged me, not wanting to have to take the mule all the way to Denver or perhaps to Pueblo or Colorado Springs for treatment, he begged me, to do surgery on the mule. I told him I had never studied veterinary practice. He said, well, you know better than anyone else what to do. I thought that was true. Perhaps the alcoholic doctor, I thought, might do a better. I could not convince him. I ended up doing, I must confess, not only a little dentistry and much doctoring, but mule surgery. The story of the mule surgery is embarrassing even to today. I will say that I was successful, but that I did not come out of the experience unbowed or unbloodied, and that the dog who ran off with the tumor when I cut it out and it was dropped to the ground was perhaps the winner of the biggest prize that day. I had been engaged when I came to Colorado. I returned, after almost two years in Crested Butte, I returned to New York and married my sweetheart, Daisy Monteith. You may have heard of Monteith's geography. It is her father who's a noted geographer. At any rate, um, we returned to Colorado, and, and I discovered that my wife, uh, we wed here in Colorado Springs, by the way, before we went back to Crested Butte for, for a while. And um, I discovered that my wife was just as much of a, of a pioneeringly spirited, if that is an appropriate term, uh, a pioneeringly spirited person as I. Well, a few more uh, months in Crested Butte, and uh, eventually um, we moved to Meeker. Meeker was just being opened up. The, well, North, northwestern Colorado was just being opened up by the U.S. Army after the, the, the Meeker massacre and the, the closing of the whole area to settlement. And so it was that instead of being one of three or four doctors in town, 
I was the only doctor for 100 miles in at least three directions. To the west, to the east, across the Continental Divide, to the north, up into Wyoming, and to the south, of course, as far as the nearest doctor down along the Colorado River, perhaps in Rifle or in Glenwood Springs. Well, it was quite different. I was not a doctor on skis so much, snowshoes. Um, I was a doctor on horseback in that country. And my cowboy skills became very, uh, very important. Um, the chance of injury, of illness, was uh, during the roundups, especially the spring and fall roundups, for it was all open range in those days, you know. The chance of, in, of injury in that cattle country was much greater uh, for those on the, the roundups. And, and, and all of us, I say us because I was on those roundups many a time to try and treat any of those possible injuries. On one, one, one roundup that I remember, a young man, uh, last name of Murphy as I remember, he had just arrived in town with a young wife and a small baby penniless we knew they were but he was destined to work hard and start his own herd and eventually his own ranch well chasing after a stray a few days after we'd started that roundup he was pitched from his horse and he broke his neck and he died uh, I, I tell you this story not because it has much to do with medical practice for there was nothing I could do with him except we could bury him of course but it, I want to tell you about what uh, my other fellows on the roundup did. For they realized that the widow, his widow, young, with a, with a babe in arms, would be destitute, was destitute. And this is what they did. This is what they came, an idea they came up with around the campfire that tells you something about those times and those people. They decided to take up a collection, not of money, but of calves. They decided to create a herd and a story that they would tell the widow about how her husband had, had, been, had started a little herd that he'd been keeping a secret from her. And so it was that they had quite a, a good little, a, a little herd of calves, of course, which became uh, heifers and, and steers by the following year. By that time, she had traveled far back, back east where they came from, back to North Carolina or Tennessee, and by the time those calves were sold the next year, there was a substantial, substantial amount of money that we were able to, we were able to send back to her. And she never knew. Now, how do, you, how do you know that we never knew? As it turned out, her attorney showed up one day, thinking perhaps that, that there were other calves, that her husband, this herd that, her, that, that the, the young bride had, had told the, the attorney about, why, we might have been cheating her out of what was her fair, fair share. In fact, when he heard the story, he just smiled and thanked us and went away with the secret, which I think he kept as well, and the money, of course, which he took back. So that was what it was like in those days. Yes, the death. Yes, the injuries, the broken legs and arms. Uh, the time I had... Uh, Two, one a very crusty Mormon and, 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 and one a very hard-drinking cowboy who both had broken uh, different parts of their legs and were in my little hospital 
my two-bed hospital that they had helped me establish in Meeker. Um, I was out treating a patient. Um, I was not there to put, a, to put a stop to the foolishness, but it was the 4th of July. And all of the boys gathered in town had been drinking, uh, I think, too extreme, and decided that it was time for the Crips in my hospital to have a race. Up and down the street, they set the race, and those two with guns as sidearms on almost every hip, those two could not refuse to take the race. Ah, uh, the Mormon rebroke his leg, and it was weeks and weeks and weeks before he was well again. But the boys, they had a wonderful time. And when I came back there over the door of my hospital, they had put up a new sign. It said, the shortest road to hell. <laughs> now, what should I have done at that point? Finding out about what they had done to my patients, seeing this sign. I'll tell you what I did. Although I have never been a drinking man, that very day I went to the, went to the saloon and I bought drinks for everyone. <laughs> Less than a year after we had come to Meeker, my wife Daisy was, was about a month or so away from delivery. And so we left Meeker and we took a wagon journey in the fall of that year. Um, across the Continental Divide, across Berthoud Pass we came, almost 300 miles the way we had to go, up the Colorado River and then, and then all the way over and back down to Colorado Springs where Daisy's family was, would spend often, uh, quite often part of the year. And that was where our first child, Rainer, was born. And after a couple of more months in Colorado Springs, I suppose my people in, in, in Meeker were able to, to treat themselves. I don't know. I never heard all of the stories about what happened while we were gone, but back we came. But in another year, as, as Rainer started to grow, um, we started to realize that it was it was probably not the best thing for the boy without a real school uh, for my wife. Uh, the country life she had been doing so admirably, but, but it, it was perhaps not the easiest for her. And there were things for me to learn in city practice. And so it was that we left the birthing of the babies in the middle of the blizzards and, and not my own child now, but others, like Anne Good's baby that was born in the middle of a blizzard. Um, and we left the the sad things, the cutting incident in which a, a, a very cruel husband had just sliced his wife up unmercifully and we were able to bring him to justice eventually. We left all those things behind and we came to the growing city of Colorado Springs. And so here it is that I have been. Here it is that my wife Daisy died after our daughter Dorothy was born. She died in 1893 of tuberculosis. Her sister had come bringing tuberculosis with her and Daisy had treated her and eventually she succumbed to the disease. I went back across the divide again with my wagon empty. I went over to Meeker to a place to a certain stone. I think it was, I think I may have even have noted the stone before. 
And I brought that stone back across the divide in that wagon. Well, if you go over to Evergreen Cemetery, you can find Daisy's grave, and you will see that that is the stone into which her epitaph has been carved. I suppose that was one of the most powerful things which inspired me to, to not only be a general practitioner here in Colorado Springs and to go on birthing babies and, and tending to just about any illness that people might have, but also to, to become a specialist in tuberculosis. Have you seen any of the, of the, of the, little, uh, the little tents, which by the hundreds, those little eight-sided tents, they're starting to call those gardener tents after me. Really, I owe the idea, I think, as much to, to, to the Ute Indian people, whom I used to see in the mountains of Colorado, and to the teepees that they built, and to the times I spent visiting with them in the teepees. I, I owe as much to them for the ideas as to, the, to the, 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 the articles from the medical books about the practice of treating tuberculosis in Germany and other places, in which the fresh air, the outdoors, the sunshine, healthy food, and rest, that prescription which I so recommend to all of you and any of your relatives, should they ever contract tuberculosis. I suppose that is where this, th these little mushrooms of, uh, of huts and, and at all the sanatoria here in Colorado Springs, I suppose that is where the ideas come from. But at any rate, um, um, I have talked enough about the old days. I have talked enough about those times. I, I will see now if, if anyone has just a few questions for me before I leave and, and let others come up and continue to discuss the medical practice, which is blooming and growing so well here in Colorado Springs and in the Pikes Peak region. Does anyone have any questions for me? Did you yourself ever contact tuberculosis? I did not, very, very fortunately. Very, very fortunately. You know, uh, I suppose that, that being outside, even, even now, uh, I, I've purchased my first automobile. And I find it uh, in some ways easier to get into the automobile and chase around town, uh, visiting all of my patients and, and going on my hospital rounds as I do. Um, uh, I, I find that fresh air is still a big part of my daily life, and I suppose that may be one, or who knows what, what fortune or misfortune awaits us. But until now, I have been free of tuberculosis. Thank you for asking that. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Very few gardener huts, tents. Well, I suppose that depends on, on how you define the word few. But it well, seems to me that there, there. Well, yes. Uh, anyway, I know I'd the like name of a good eye doctor. Uh, uh, come like and see me. Come and see me afterward, and I would be glad to to give you a referral. At any rate, go ahead. Go ahead with your question. I'd like to gather gather some people, to maybe go around and photograph them to document them. And yes. Preserve them since I've seen so few. Yes, and, and if you would like plans for the huts, um, I, I have had uh, the local tent and awning company uh, construct many of them. If you'd like the plans so that you have that for your documentation, that would be, that would be something I would be glad to provide you too, yes. Anyone else? I, I have been told by other people who have older houses like I have, my house is 1923, um, that some of the porches that are still in existence, and we have a change of floor, different types of wood used, and I'm wondering if it could have been an isolation room that people built for their own 
patients versus uh, many people many people now and, and in the last decade or so have been constructing um, their homes with uh, if, if not uh, huts and tents in the back or the side yard of the house with the, the screened, screened porches and of course those are those are marvelous for uh, for I recommend them to all I recommend them to all not just uh, not just those who are suffering from 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 consumption from tuberculosis. Perhaps it is the, the, the floor. You say you're intending to build your house uh, 15 years from now? In, in 1923, yes. Good, that is the plan. Excellent. Uh, I wish you, I wish you uh, the best of luck with your construction. Uh, you, I can see like you, you, like me, have been saving your pennies. Yes. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Uh, the cat that you dissected, did you by any chance pocket some of its nine lives? <laughs> I, su I, suppose, I suppose that I have. I suppose that I have. Um, I want to thank you all very much for letting me expound on the early days of my practice here in Colorado, and I wish you all a very safe and, and, and healthful life.